Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. How are you doing on this very hot, smoky day, Ben? Well, better than the last couple of hot, smoky days. So it's been hotter and smokier? We speak to you from the past. Uh, My brain can't do the math necessary to figure out how far in the past we are, but from our perspective, we've just gone through a week of the air quality in Calgary being like on a 10, on a 1 to 10 scale where 1 is clean and 10 is the inside of a smokestack. Yeah, Um, it's actually been 10 plus. That's right, and then that's been combined with the fact that like the temperatures have been, you know, between like 37 and 40 degrees Celsius, which for Calgary is ludicrous. Like, I think last Saturday was the hottest it had been in Calgary in 100 years or something like that. Yeah. So the heat is bad, but the smoke means we can't open up any windows to, like, get airflow. So... Well, we could. It would just be bad airflow. Right. And I would not be able to speak for the podcast. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, what are we watching? Today, Sarah... What do mine eyes see upon that screen? Well, Sarah, today we are watching Dr. Cyclops. This... (laughs) I don't really know what to make of this movie. I've never seen it. Um, I'd never even heard of it before doing this show. That is a good sign, I'm sure. But there's a lot of interesting things about it that make me think it might be like a hidden gem. Okay, tell us about it. So, Dr. Cyclops comes to us from Paramount Pictures. And it's been a while since we've seen a movie in the horror genre come from Paramount. The last one was Supernatural in 1933. Which was definitely like, I think it was still technically an A picture, but Mm -hmm. it was like one rung above a B picture (sighs) in terms of like amount of of, like, money or care that went into it. Sure. Um, But I'll also remind you that some of the other Paramount horror films we've seen have been Murders in the Zoo, The Island of Lost Souls, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's a really good point. So they had a pretty good track record before they partnered up with the Halperin brothers one time and then stopped forever. (laughs) So in 1933, when Supernatural came out, Uh, That also happened to be the year that the studio went bankrupt. Ooh. So Famous Players was founded as a merger between um, three companies. Lasky Theaters, which was owned by Jesse Lasky. Famous Players Theaters, owned by Adolf Zucker. And Paramount Pictures, a distribution company rather than a chain of theaters, that was founded by William Hodwinson. And... By the time the studio went bankrupt, Lasky and Hodwinson were out, and it was just Zucker who was left, and he had basically overextended the company by using the company's stocks to make corporate purchases, basically as like a form of um, using stocks as currency. And uh, then the Depression hit, and his stock market chicanery 
basically backfired on him. I don't think it should be legal to purchase something with stocks. Because stocks... I am I am not an economist. I barely understand what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay, cool. So let's continue. Yeah. Let's not dig that hole any deeper by trying to go into detail on it. Sure. Um the other thing that happened at the same time is the production code happened, mm. uh, which was a devastating sort of one-two punch with the bankruptcy since Paramount's greatest successes in the early 30s were with sort of provocative sex comedies, um, particularly those starring Mae West, or cartoons like Betty Boop, which were... Um, provocative. Meant, meant for adult audiences. This put Paramount in a very difficult position. And what followed was a three-year period of bank-mandated reorganization of the company and its assets and how it was structured. And when it came out the other side in 1936, it was the, you know, sort of newly reformed Paramount Pictures Incorporated um, that was fully integrated as opposed to being this kind of merger between different companies um, with Adolf Zucker as chairman of the board, uh, the last sort of man standing, as it were. Mm. The studio, throughout this period, managed to continue production on films, um, quite a lot of production on films. Uh, it pumped out between 60 to 70 pictures a year and focused primarily on its star system. Uh, you may recall from past episodes that Paramount Pictures invented the idea of movie stars. That's why there's stars in the logo. Yeah, and if they're wanting to make sure that they're getting their money back on these films, of course they're going to lean on their stars. Mm -hmm. They also replaced Betty Boop with Popeye, hmm. who by 1935 was more popular than Mickey Mouse in audience polls. So all of this meant that by the late 30s, the studio was back on track. Mm -hmm. In 1940... The U.S. government declared that vertically integrated studios like Paramount, so that means that studios that owned both the production side of making movies, but also the distribution and exhibition of films, would no longer be able to block book and pre-sell their films. So what does block book mean? So Paramount owned its own theaters, the famous players chain of theaters. So obviously... Paramount Films are going to show in Famous Players Theatres. Other theatres were owned by different studios. Some theatres were independent. So you might ask the question, how would you get a Paramount picture shown in a theatre not owned by Paramount? For example, let's say you live in a small town in the U.S. instead of a large city. Your one theatre in town might not be a Famous Players. Does that mean you'll never see a Paramount film your whole life? No. Um, they all sold each other's films to each other. And the way that was done was with a technique called block booking. Uh, so this would be like, you know, I don't know, MGM, for example, might say, okay, we're not going to sell you one film to exhibit. We're going to sell you 10 in a block. So if you want Gone with the Wind, you need to take these nine other shitty movies along with it. Um, and that was how they got their other movies shown, because otherwise you'd maybe only buy, you know, if you weren't owned by MGM, you maybe only would buy Gone with the Wind because it's a huge hit, and not these other MGM movies, because you're Warners and you don't want to spend money on MGM product. Now that's no longer allowed. Correct. 
so that practice has been decreed illegal in 1940. Uh, the other practice that was sort of taken out in the same decree was pre-selling, which was a practice whereby the studio would sell the movies to the theaters before the movies were even in production. Oh, that, yeah, definitely make that illegal. So you would say, hey, we've got a spot on the release calendar for a Gary Cooper movie. It's going to be a Western. Uh, Veronica Lake is going to be the actress in it. Do you want this? Yes, no. And with no other knowledge of what this movie's going to be, you had to say yes, I guess, in case it was a hit. So those are illegal now. Okay. In response to this, Paramount decreased their output from 60 to 70 movies a year to 20 movies a year because they were anticipating huge financial trouble. They were anticipating huge losses. So the idea was to cut back on, to, on production to minimize those losses. But what happened was cinema attendance was actually shooting to an all-time high in the 1940s. Each year saw greater attendance figures than the year before it, up until the late 40s. I think 1949, I want to say, is the most anyone ever went to go see movies in theaters. And with stars like Bob Hope and Veronica Lake on the studio's payroll, Paramount actually made more money than ever before because of the increased cinema attendance, but the lower output of films. You're spending less money making movies, but making more money because more people are coming to see them. And probably getting those um, existing films a wider release, because mm -hmm. you kind of want to spread it around. Mm -hmm. So, uh, with a lot of money in their pockets, that brings us to Dr. Cyclops. <laughs> sure, okay. So Dr. Cyclops was produced by Dale Van Every, a writer, producer, and studio executive at Paramount. Um, he had gotten his start working for the United Press in the 1920s before becoming a writer of historical nonfiction. Don't tell me that Dr. Cyclops is historical nonfiction. No, 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 no. Okay, no. okay. Van Every's first novel, Telling the World, was made into a movie in 1928, and so he went to Hollywood to work on the movie and ended up staying in Hollywood to write more screenplays. He became an executive at Universal Pictures under the Lemley family, and he was one of the writers of the screenplay for Murders in the Room Morgue. And that's the last time we talked about him on the show. Okay. So you can hear more about him if you go back to that episode. In 1934, he moved over to Paramount, where he was earning a $52,000 annual salary as a movie executive. He was nominated for an Academy Award in 1937 for his screenplay for Captain's Courageous. The story for Dr. Cyclops is written by Tom Kilpatrick, and it necessitated some very complex special effects. So, to direct the film, Van Every turned to a man who could handle the requirements of shooting a movie with a lot of complex special effects. Ernest B. Schotzak. Born in 1893 in Iowa, Schotzak ran away from home at age 14. He went to San Francisco and became a surveyor, and then began working as a cameraman in 1914. 
When World War I began, he joined the Signal Corps, shot spy films from biplanes, and flew combat missions. His eyes were damaged during the war, and when it was over, he stuck around in Europe for four years with the Red Cross, assisting refugees escaping Eastern Europe. Mm. In 1918, he met Marion C. Cooper, a heroic wartime pilot, big fighter ace, uh, as well as a writer for the New York Times. And that paper then hired the two men for an expedition around the world as journalist and cameraman. Cool. While in the Galapagos Islands, Shotsak met screenwriter and former actress Ruth Rose and fell in love, and the two got married. The three of them then decided to make their own movies, beginning with the ethnographic documentary Grass in 1925 about nomadic life in Persia. Shotsak and Cooper were co-producers, uh, co-directors, and then Shotsak would serve as director of photography. In 1927, they followed up that film with Chang, uh, another ethnographic documentary about the jungles of Siam, during which the crew was nearly crushed by stampeding elephants, and Shotsak was nearly eaten by a Bengal tiger, an experience he got on film. <sighs> Chang was nominated for Best Picture at the first Academy Awards ceremony. In 1929, Cooper and Shotsak made their first fiction film, the Four Feathers, uh, which is about the British Army in India. Uh, and it starred Richard Arlen and Faye Ray. They followed that with the simultaneous production of The Most Dangerous Game and King Kong. <laughs> King Kong was co-directed and co-produced by the two men with a screenplay by Shodzak and Rose based on a story by Cooper and Edgar Wallace. Mm-hmm. The main characters in the film, Jack Driscoll, Carl Denham, and Anne Darrow, were fictionalized versions of Shodzak, Cooper, and Rose. With Willis O'Brien creating the groundbreaking stop-motion effects, Cooper focused on directing scenes with heavy effects integration, while Shodzak concentrated on directing the scenes that had actors and drama. After the immense success of King Kong, Cooper moved towards exclusively producing films, while Shotsat moved to exclusively directing them. This was then the arrangement on the sequel, Son of Kong, which was written solely by Ruth Rose. Cooper and Shotsat sort of drifted apart in the late 1930s as Cooper became involved in the financial and technical efforts to perfect three-tone Technicolor, while Shotsat continued his directing career with films like The Monkey's Paw and The Last Days of Pompeii, specializing in adventure movies set in exotic locales like Outlaws of the Orient and Trouble in Morocco. Due to the extensive special effects work needed, Dr. Cyclops was planned out in detail through storyboards, set plans, and blueprints before shooting ever began. The special effects in the film are by Farsiot Eduard, the inventor of rear projection, and Gordon Jennings, who had done the effects for Island of Lost Souls. And their expense was complicated by Shotsak deciding to shoot in three-tone Technicolor as a benefit to his friend Marion Cooper. Dr. Cyclops is our first film on the show that is in the full Technicolor process. 
But it's, is it the first tech, three-tone no, technical? No, God, no, no. I mean, okay. we're only watching horror movies on uh, this show. Yeah, so. but I mean, like, the first, like, live action. Nah, nah, nah. That was probably still back in the 30s, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Disney had three-tone Technicolor. Yeah, I'm getting there. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll stop interrupting. Yeah. The three-tone Technicolor process, uh, which I'm about to tell you about, was complicated enough without adding special effects of this nature to the film. So three-strip Technicolor had been used exclusively by Disney from 1932 to 1935. They had a exclusivity contract with Technicolor when the process was first invented in 1932. RKO's Becky Sharp in 1935 was the first live-action feature film that was shot entirely in the process. Um, And then the later success of films such as Snow White in 1937, The Wizard of Oz in 1938, and Gone with the Wind in 1939 increased the popularity and demand for color in film. Mm. So, so we're, you know, we're several years into it. For sure. I, for some reason, forgot about Wizard of Oz and <laughs> Gone with the Wind. Sometimes when you're doing a podcast that's just horror movies, you forget that other movies exist. exist. <laughs> so, in three-strip Technicolor, a single camera is loaded with three rolls of black-and-white film. A prism is then placed behind the lens so that when light enters the camera, the beam is split three ways by the prism. Then, each strip of film of the three rolls is sensitive to a different wavelength of light. So one roll records only the blue light, one the green, and one the red. Then the three negatives are printed onto a clear gelatin film that would be thickest and most absorbent where the image was darkest, and thinner where it was lightest. Then each gelatin print would be soaked in a dye of a complementary color, so the red strip in cyan, the green strip in magenta, and the blue strip in yellow. Then the three dyed strips would be printed uh, basically together, along with a strip of black and white film derived from the green negative, which was added in order to provide contrast, Hmm. as well as conceal what was called fringing where the colors maybe didn't quite line up properly. Um, also, the soundtrack would be printed on the, this fourth strip, which was called the key strip, or K. So these cameras required a large, bulky sound blimp in order to suppress the noise of three reels of film shooting simultaneously, and the beam splitter reduced the amount of light reaching the film stock by a third, So films which used Technicolor required greater amounts of lighting than black and white. So that meant that studio temperatures often exceeded 40 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit due to the heat of the lights. Several performers in this era suffered permanent eye damage due to the high light levels they were acting under. And we were just complaining about 40 degree weather. Mm -hmm. Synergy. Uh, Didn't mean for that to happen. No. Um, hey, did those, uh, performers get to sue the studios for, like, healthcare costs or some shit? Nah, you're on contract, yo. Yeah. The studio owns your ass. Yeah. So, studios were also not permitted to buy Technicolor cameras. They could only rent them. 
and then when they rented them, they had to be accompanied by a color supervisor from the Technicolor company, who would then ensure that the film's sets, costumes, and makeup would not push past the system's limitations. So all of this together, the added lights, triple the film stock, the dye procedure, the print costs, the camera rental, the added technicians, it all meant that Technicolor productions were by necessity much higher budget. Um, and so the use of the process was limited to high-profile productions, uh, literary adaptations, historical dramas, as well as genres thought to benefit from color, like musicals and fantasies. So why the hell is Dr. Cyclops a horror movie in three-tone technicolor? Exactly. What the heck? It's not the kind of genre you, you are supposed to be shooting in technicolor in this time. It's happening because, basically, Marion C. Cooper, his company, Pioneer Pictures, was a heavy investor in Technicolor, and Shotzak is Cooper's best friend, and Shotzak's directing the movie. That's why it's happening. All right. And then you put all of that on top of the um, quite extensive optical effects that Dr. Cyclops required. Optical effects? Yeah. For Dr. Cyclops? That wasn't meant to be a pun. That was just a statement. I know. <laughs> Um, and you get a very expensive movie, indeed, with a lot of time-consuming technical aspects to it. So... That's what I'm trying to emphasize here. Yeah, so the only reason Paramount was, like, maybe okay with the idea of any of this is the fact that they're only producing 19 other films this year. Right. And they're making big money. Exactly, which is why I talked about that at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So starring in the title role of Dr. Cyclops is... Actor Albert Decker, born in Brooklyn in 1905. He majored in pre-med with plans to become a doctor. As he does. But switched to acting on the advice of a friend. <laughs> he appeared on Broadway uh, starting in 1927 and then switched to film in 1937. Uh, he would go on to have a long career after this movie. He appeared in The Killers. He appeared in Kiss Me Deadly. He appeared in The Wild Bunch. Uh, as well as a ton of roles in between all throughout there. Um, he would also go on to serve in the California State Assembly as a Democrat from 1945 to 1947. He would speak out against McCarthy in the 1950s uh, and then pass away by accident in 1968. So Dr. Cyclops was released on April 12th, 1940. The special effects earned it an Academy Award nomination alongside The Invisible Man Returns, uh, though both lost out to The Thief of Baghdad. Critics responded to the film with mixed reception. Basically, the consensus was to place it in the so-bad-it's-good category. Oh. Uh, the New York Times called it, quote, the best bad picture of the year, unquote, and also concluded it to be, quote, frankly terrible, and at the same time, one of the most amusing pictures of the season. Okay. Basically, what the critics said was it was ridiculous and silly, but a lot of fun and well-made, is what they're trying to say. Sure. So Shodzak's injured eyes from World War I um, had deteriorated significantly by this point. Uh, so Dr. Cyclops would be his final film until 1949, when he reunited with Marion Cooper and Willis O'Brien to make Mighty Joe Young, uh, which would then be his final feature film. Okay. The uh, extra light for this film 
probably did not help his eyes. Mm. Well, luckily, as the director, you're not looking at the lights. You're looking at... You're on the other side of the camera. So. Yeah, but it's still a lot reflecting back at you. Mm-hmm. So how are we watching this movie? Uh, Dr. Cyclops is available on DVD from the Universal Vault series, which is Universal's um, print-on-demand archive series. But you said this was Paramount. Yeah, film rights uh, change around over the course of 70 years. Okay. Well, folks, we're going to watch Dr. Cyclops from 1940. Feel free to watch along if you can find a copy. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Dr. Cyclops. See you on the other side, everybody. To scream scene, everybody. We just finished watching Doctor Cyclops. Sarah, what did you think? It was a movie we watched. It was enjoyable. Honey, I shrunk the scientists. Yes, that's <laughs> that's exactly what this is. Um, I have really mixed feelings, Sarah, because I wanted to like this. Yeah. And then I was liking this. Yeah. And then suddenly I wasn't liking this anymore. And then that part just continued. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go over the story? Sure. So it opens with Dr. Thorkel, a.k.a. Dr. Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reason he has that name is because he, he has very thick glasses. Without his glasses, he's practically blind. Yeah, he can't see well. There's some other reasons that come up later, like metaphorical reasons, but, like, it's basically he, he can't see well. And he is making a very strange discovery with radiation. All we know is it's a discovery against nature. <laughs> because uh, Dr. Mendoza says so. Dr. Mendoza actually owns the mine where this ore that they're getting this radiation from is coming from, and he's like, this is against nature, I'm not going to allow you to use my mine and the ore to do this, and Thorkel disagrees and kills Mendoza and now has the mine for himself. Uh, And that is like the first five minutes, Mm -hmm. and that is like the best part of the movie. Yeah, the first five minutes are awesome. They're like full-on pulp sci-fi comic book just translated to film. Like green light emanating from the experiment. Uh, He kills Mendoza by like grabbing his throat and shoving his head into the glass where the radiation is going. And when you see Mendoza's face, there's like a purple skull outlined on his face. It's fucking amazing. The rest of the movie is a colossal letdown. No pun intended. Fast forward to Thorkel sending for some scientists. Two renowned biologists, Dr. Mary Robinson and Dr. Bullfinch, as well as mineralogist, uh, Dr. Bill Stockton, to come and analyze some samples. And they bring along with them uh, this mule owner, Steve Baker. He wants to take along under the guise of, like, 
I want to take care of my meals. But he suspects that there's a mine up here and he wants in on the, on the money. When they get there, they meet Thorkel's assistant, Pedro, who explains that animals go into Thorkel's house, but they don't come out. And right now you might be wondering to yourself, wow, that's, that's a lot of characters. And you're absolutely right. At least some of them die. Yes. Thorkel has the doctors analyze some samples. They say, yeah, that's stuff. Yeah, there's some iron in there. And then he's like, cool, thanks, bye. Please leave. Yeah, the deal is that, like, his eyesight's so bad that he can't use microscopes anymore. So he called biologists and mineralogists down here to look at his samples just to say, like, what's in them so that he could confirm his own theories. And then he just wants to send them away. Like, he brought them all the way for that. And they're like, um, no. (laughs) You brought us all this way. We're not just leaving after, like, being here for an afternoon. And Thorkel's, like, upset about this. So they go digging to figure out, like, why is he being so secretive? What's up with this? And they discover that this is a pitchblend mine. Um, pitchblend is a combination of radium and uranium, so it's, like, ideal radiation mine. Yeah. (laughs) Thorkel finds them in his house, just snooping through his shit, and gets, like, super mad. And then talks them into, he's like, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you what's going on. Uh, shows them the experiment room where he sucks all of the radiation out of the mine. And then locks the door with all of them, the three scientists, the meal guy, and the assistant, all in there, and shrinks them. Yeah, to about like a foot tall, I think. Yeah, yeah, like the, the height of a, an iPhone. No, 13 inches is like twice the height of an iPhone, honey. To my hands. My hands are small. Anyways. No, that's not how size works. So Thorkel is very pleased uh, after having shrunk them because post-experiment, the shrunk people are showing that they still have their personalities. They've retained their knowledge and their ability of, abilities of comprehension. Super good. But he discovers that these people are growing, and will not permanently stay small. So he's like, huh, I guess I have to kill them. Bullfinch is the first to die, and Pedro is the second. Between fending off cats, alligators, and chickens, eventually the remaining Mary, Steve, and Bob sneak into Thorkel's house, break all of his glasses, and the one pair that's left, they manage to smash one of the lenses, so now he truly is Cyclops. He is one Good eye. Mm -hmm. He chases them around, fumbles, and uh, ends up on the rope leading down a mine shaft, which then Bob cuts the rope and Thorkel falls to his death. Months later, they arrive in normal size back to their original base camp, and Mary and Bob are in love. The end. And it's implied they're going to keep that mine for themselves. That too. I mean, that's what Steve was saying. But, uh, whatever. Anyways, that's that's the movie. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but basically what's important to understand, listeners, is that there's the first five minutes that we said were great. There's maybe, like, another 10, 15 minutes that are about everybody arriving at the camp, the mystery of what, like, Thorkel's doing, this kind of intrigue. And that was handled actually pretty well. Yeah, it, was it was done in, like, a, a little bit like a montage type feel. Yeah. Um, you know, what's Thorkel up to? 
Um, there's clues, figuring out the clues. That part's all right. And then, you know, it's maybe, I want to guess, 20 minutes into the movie that they get shrunk. And, you know, obviously, like, that's the big part of the movie. Like, you kind of do want to get to that. It's really the small part of the movie. The problem is... (laughs) The problem is that, like, the rest of the movie's runtime, and I I wasn't paying attention to how long this one is, but... An hour 15. Okay. What Sarah said about, like, and then they run away from him, a couple of them die, and then they, you know, trap him in his house and kill him, that's the whole rest of the movie. Yeah. Like, basically the majority of this movie is... We're small. Yeah, it's it's special effects set pieces, right? Yeah. It's, we're going to do this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing, in a series of little mini-adventures with them being small. But there isn't really, like, a story here. Mm-hmm. This movie, I think, suffers from what I'm going to call the mummy syndrome. Okay, okay. Um, because the mummy, 1932... You know, we we jokingly called it Egyptian Dracula, Mm -hmm. because, like, the main part of it is that. But it's also, like, a little boring. But the reason I say that Dr. Cyclops suffers from the the mummy syndrome is because the mummy has a really fucking awesome prologue. Oh, okay. And then nothing really happens for the rest of it. Okay, I understand the comparison now. Yes. Because, like, after the first five minutes of Dr. Cyclops, I was like... What? Did you see the purple skull? Ben! Ben! And he's like, yeah, I saw it, Sarah. We're trying to watch a movie. And, like, the lighting in it, it's like... You know how when light reflects off of a pool and it's, like, all ripply reflected on mm-hmm. the walls? That's how it is in that scene, but it's green. like it. And from, like, like energy stuff? It, it's like Kirby Dots as lighting. Yeah, and even the opening credits had, like, green mysteriousness going on. And I was like, this is why you do three-tone Technicolor. I was, like, super into it. They do all consistently use green when they're showing, like, light from the radiation. So that's kind of a neat way to be, like, to justify the three-tone Technicolor, I Mm -hmm. guess. But, like, after that prologue, it was like, okay, so we're just watching a regular movie. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about The Mummy, but that's that's a good comparison. I was thinking a lot about King Kong because, obviously. Yeah. And a lot of this movie is like King Kong, except it, it's the same kind of gags. It's just, instead of taking a tiny ape model and then using optical effects to make it look gigantic next to regular-sized humans, we're using optical effects to make a regular-sized human look gigantic next to other regular-sized humans. But it's the same kind of stuff. Like... Dr. Cyclops is the King Kong of this movie, but it's still the, like, big thing coming after relatively compared to it tiny things and, like, hiding away from it in caves or fending off giant animals or this kind of stuff. It's just instead of us having, like, regular-sized people for our characters and all the animals are giant, we have tiny people against regular-sized animals, right? Yeah. Um, I've been a fan of sci-fi and genre movies my whole life. And one of the, like, recurring criticisms that you hear about genre film, uh, especially sci-fi and fantasy, is you hear this criticism that, like, oh, they have no story because it's all just about the special effects. It's special effects in place of story. 
And I often disagree with that criticism. A lot of movies that get that criticism are just victims of critics who don't get it, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Star Wars or whatever. This is that movie. Yeah. This is what they're talking about. This is a movie that was made as an excuse for these special effects set pieces. And they are well executed. It's That's the other thing that I have a trouble with with this movie in terms of figuring out if I like it or not, is the movie's well made. It's it's all well produced. It's just that the novelty of the effects wears off very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the movie doesn't have anything there to back it up. It's not about anything, you know, other than some generic mad scientist movie lip service to like, oh, messing with the forces of nature at the start of the movie. But there's nothing else going on here. The characters are totally uninteresting. I mean, Thorkel himself is probably the most engaging character. And Albert Decker probably gives the best acting performance in the movie. Um, not that it's great, but it's the best performance <laughs> in the movie. And that, But Thorkel being the most engaging character is a problem because we're given basically no reason to like or sympathize with any of the protagonists. Dr. Bullfinch, who dies first is a jerk. He's an arrogant, stuck-up jerk. Yeah, think stereotypical stock character of the professor. Yes. And he's really, like, no more or less likable than Thorkel. Mm-hmm. Like, he just thinks he's better than everyone. I was fine when he died. Yeah. Then you have Mary, who is perhaps the closest to being an engaging character because she's a competent, intelligent woman in a movie from the 40s. But she isn't given enough to do for you to really feel like you're engaging with her as a yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you've got Bob, who is basically unlikable. Like, he's supposed to be... What they're trying to do is make him, like, the roguish, you know, anti-hero who eventually becomes likable. But there, again, isn't enough actually there to really complete that arc. So he's just this lazy jerk who, by the end, is our romantic hero because we had a young woman and a young man left by the end of the movie, so of course they fall in love. Yeah. For no, And that's the only reason. We're never really shown them falling in love over the course of the movie. It's just, oh, you two are left. I guess you'll bang now. Yeah. Steve was kind of interesting. Steve is interesting, but again, he's a stock character. He's that, like, the grizzled, pragmatic audience stand-in who doesn't know anything about science so that we can explain something. Explain everything to him. I guess the reason why I found him interesting is because when he shows up, you think he's going to be the dummy that the characters explain things to. But then that doesn't actually end up happening. Yeah. You know, he discovers that the ore is pitch blend at the same time as everyone else. Um, I'm surprised he doesn't die at the end. And he's like, sweet, so we went through that horrible experience, but now we got a mine. And then there's Pedro, who's just like... A South American stereotype. Yeah, it was really frustrating like to he, see his treatment in this film. No one's, like, racist towards him, but the film itself is treating him poorly because he doesn't get a shirt when he's shrunk. Yeah. he. Everyone else gets, like, togas, like, Greek-style things, and he's just in, like, underpants. Um, he's got, like, a very, like, mid-century stereotype Mexican sort of accent, like if you were to do like a 
a bad Mexican caricature. That's sort of what his accent is. He's very simple-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really understand what's going on. He's there solely for comic relief, and then he dies. By gunshot, <laughs> which we were joking, like, he should have, like, exploded because he's tiny and bullets are big. Yeah. And it was a shotgun. Yeah. He dies the same way that everyone in movies from this era dies, which is with no visible wounds at all, just kind of twirl around and fall down. But, like... He should have combusted. Yes. I feel like a big problem with what we're talking about with these characters is that the movie makes this really poor decision once they're shrunk to barely give them any dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like there's no scene where we get to have them talk to each other and react to being shrunk. We never see them like wake up and go, oh my God, what's happened to us? Oh, who, you know, what's going on? Oh, wow, this is what's happening. Here's our reactions. Here's how we're feeling. That never really happens. What dialogue we get from them once they're shrunk is very straight and to the point. Like, let's do this now. Let's do that now. Um, And it really increases this feeling that the movie's only a showpiece for these various effects sequences that it's running the characters through. You know, it's not really a story. You kind of get the feeling from the way that they are acting and the fact that they don't speak that they were told to act like mice. Yeah. The way that they huddle together, the way that they move together. The only time that they speak is when it's like the plot is calling for it. Yes. Um, like, like what you just said. Like, it, it... You know the mice in Cinderella? That's how they are, only they don't talk. Yeah, it's it's almost baffling because the script goes out of its way to enforce that, like, their mental faculties are normal. The same. Um, But it doesn't really demonstrate that except for Bullfinch calling out Thorkle. The other thing is, like, by making it so that they all just return to normal size eventually, like it's a temporary process, it takes away a lot of agency from the characters because all they need to do is run away, like, long enough to uh, wait to get to normal size. Yeah. You know, there's a moment where they decide, okay, no, let's actually go after Thorkel and kill him. But that's not for any, like real reason it's just out of like the principle of like this guy fucked around with us so we're gonna murder him for it yeah um it's a little bit of a tom and jerry feel yes during those scenes yeah the whole movie once they're shrunk is a cat and mouse cartoon is what it is just in live action with people and it's weak because like imagine if it was oh we need to turn ourselves back because you've got like a bunch of scientists in the cast right so what if it was oh, we need to get back into his lab and we need to distract him while you get enough time to understand the machine so that you can rewire it to blah, blah. Like, have a fucking plot mm-hmm. rather than just once they're shrunk, you're just waiting till the runtime of the movie's over. It's just biding time. It's just here to show off these special effects. And so I want to talk about those special effects for a second. Sure. They were fairly good. There were some neat moments where, like, you'd have Thorkel in the background interacting with, like, Bullfinch in the foreground and, like, kind of neat stuff like that. Giant hands and, and such and giant props. But for some reason, like, as good as they were, I didn't feel as wowed by them as I did in the scenes of the Devil Doll, for okay. example. I was going to bring that up because, I mean, that was our last shrunken person movie. Yeah. Um, I thought they were similar. There were shots in this that were pulled off better than in The Devil Doll. The Devil Doll had some weak shots in the in it. 
Um, but its focus wasn't... On the effects. Yeah. I think... So the, the way the Devil Doll... Both the Devil Doll and this movie used a combination of two methods to create the effects. Um, and there's one that they shared in common and another that differs. Okay. So in both films, what they did was create basically like giant ta- chairs and giant tables and giant books for the regular size actors to like run around in. And I think in both movies, those shots work well. Yeah. In The Devil Doll, when we had to have regular size actors and mini actors in the same frame, they used matting. So they would have put the, the teeny actors on like a black velvet set and shot them. And then the regular size actors, they would shoot normal, and then they'd composite the two together. In this movie, they used a technique called rear projection, where they clearly, like, shot all the stuff with the either the giant character or the small character, like whichever, first, and then put it on a screen rear projected behind the actors and then shot that live. Mm-hmm. There are advantages and disadvantages to both methods. Matt's can have a problem where people don't look like they're part of the reality if they're not done quite well, and people can like occasionally be a little see-through or have black lines around them if it's not done well. But if it is done well, it looks good. Rear projection has the problem where the projected image never quite looks... Right. Yeah, because you can... Clear, because you can like see the film grains and other things. Um, front projection does a much better job, but it's a lot more difficult to pull off. Regardless, like, both movies do a good job. I think there's some shots in Devil Doll that are weaker than this, but I agree with you that I was more impressed with Devil Doll, and maybe that's just because it's the first one of this type that we saw. Not quite. The first time we saw Little People was Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, that's true. That's true. That is very true. They sucked in Bride of Frankenstein. (laughs) I think that was... Again, like, giant props, but I think it was matting. Matting, yes. I just, you know, for a movie that's all about the special effect, the other problem is those are the only two effects, right? It's either giant sets and props or rear projection. And so once you see both examples, like within the first few minutes of them getting shrunk, there's nothing else going on in the movie to really impress, which is so disappointing because, like you said, there's that bit with the like purple skull when the guy gets the radiation at the start, you would have thought that they would have, there would have been more shit going on. Like more radi- style. Cause otherwise it's just like shot so plainly. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a victim of what a lot of early Technicolor films can be a victim of, which is the need for the bright lighting means that everything just is flat. This film looks like, a Disney live action movie from the fifties or something. Like yeah. it, it looks like the kind of thing you'd see on Saturday morning. It has no identity to it really. And I think that's why the prologue was also so striking because you had just told me about three tone Technicolor needing so much light. And here we start off with like an incredibly dark scene mm-hmm. with like, sure they're using light, but in a completely unique way of like the shimmers on the wall and so it was like oh really yeah tell me more and it was like oh there's actually nothing here yeah and i would have hoped for like some other 
effects, like some, I don't know, some radium heat rays or something, like some other stuff going on other than just the the shrinking thing, which doesn't, because there isn't any story, it doesn't sustain the whole rest of the movie. It's kind of like you see a really good profile picture on Tinder and you're like, oh, let's meet up, and they're actually like just super boring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's it's so disappointing because like you know these are the guys who made King Kong and like King Kong is an effects movie for sure but it also tells a story like this is like as if Kong never gets off the island or something right like that's because that's the big change in King Kong is going from Kong on the island to Kong in the city we never get that Kong in the city part here um King Kong is incredibly tightly edited mm-hmm. and paced this film, not so much. Yeah. Like, maybe if I was more, like, concerned about will the alligator get them? Like, I wasn't concerned. Yeah, it's all very languid. There isn't a good sense of, like, tension yeah. in anything that happens. There's no time. Like, you're just sitting there going, uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Thrilling. Yeah, that's why, um, if I were to kind of describe this, it's it's got that pulp feel because of the mad scientist and the radioactivity um science fictiony i guess because of that but it really just feels like a pulp drama yeah it's it's a pulp sci-fi adventure movie yeah it's not horror yeah Uh, a mad scientist does not a horror movie make exactly um i will say in its credit that the radiation shrinking gimmick is neat considering it's only 1940 and radiation isn't, like, the big sci-fi buzz concept that it'll be in the 50s after the atomic bombs get dropped. Um, you I know. would like to know how early, like, is this the earliest Honey, I Shrunk the Scientists type deal film? Because, like, get into the 50s and there's, like, oh, yeah. the sh- incredible shrinking man and, like... Look, we're small. Yeah, there's so many, like, or the the Attack of the 50,000-Foot Woman. Like, there's so many shrinker growth movies. It's funny you bring up Incredible Shrinking Man, though, because that perfectly encapsulates what's wrong with Dr. Cyclops, which is the utter lack of story. The Incredible Shrinking Man has a story. It has a character. It has a character arc. It has emotion and drama, and it has a really killer ending. And... This movie just has a mad scientist and some shrunken people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's just not enough here. It wouldn't rank well even if we were ranking it, and I don't think we're ranking it. No. Because this isn't horror. This this isn't horror. No. If we were to rank just the first five minutes, <laughs> dang, would that be a fun discussion? But we don't do that. Yeah, It, it exactly. Like, you can't call a movie a genre from, like, one scene, right? Because, like, that's not how anything works. (laughs) I mean, like, with the case of The Mummy, the rest of it was, like, very, very tepid horror, and also was, like, just Dracula, but in Egypt. But it was still horror. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, it was tepid, but it was still horror. This was a completely different genre. Yeah. This is a pulp sci-fi adventure. Like, yes, the first bit of it's scary, but so's the bit where, like, the Nazi faces melt in... Indiana Jones. Sure. That doesn't make Indiana Jones horror. Alright, so if we're not ranking it, then it's not going on the list. But if you'd still like to check out the other miscellaneous films on the list or any of the other episodes we've mentioned today, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com and check things out there. 
You can also drop us a line on our Tumblr page by going to our appeals box where you can appeal this or any other ranking. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, and is available through most podcasting apps with our RSS feed. You can help the show out by spreading the word. Let a friend know about us. Recommend us to people on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or in real life. Mastodon. That's a whole new social media. I feel like it's an old social media that people keep threatening to move to the same way that people threaten to move to Canada. Like, <laughs> it's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> I have a girlfriend, but she's a Mastodon. You don't know her. Exactly. <laughs> Another way you can help out the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month. At higher tiers, such as $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio, and at $10 a month, unique horror short fiction for our patrons, written by me. Uh, we're hoping to one day hit our Patreon goal, which will allow us to do bonus episodes once a month covering horror-adjacent films. So maybe we'd actually do a King Kong episode. That'd be kind of neat. What are we watching next week? Well, Sarah... Is it going to be horror? Let me pitch you something. Okay. So it's Boris Karloff All right. as a mad scientist. I don't, in a, I don't think I've seen that before. In a Columbia Pictures film. Huh. Directed by Nick Grinder. Okay. About a mad scientist. Clearly. Who is able to get around death and bring things back to life, including himself. This does sound very familiar. The title is The Man with Nine Lives. Is he a cat person? No. Is this like a secret prequel to cat people? No. No. It's just The Man with Nine Lives, a completely unrelated movie to The Man They Could Not Hang, or The Man Who Lived Again, or The Man Who Changed His Mind. Not the same movie, again. Not at all. Well, folks, we will... See you next week when we watch a totally brand new film, never before seen here, on the Scream Scene Podcast. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.